everyone. So glad to see um, all of you join in today. Um, and amidst all these power cuts as well, um, please bear with us as we um, navigate all of these technical difficulties. Um, but I think we'll be all right. Um, my name is Emma and I'm the Communications Jedi for Good Life X. Um, and again, we're so excited um, to have you all with us here. Um, tonight is our final session um, in the Regenerating a Creative Future conversation series. Um, so this series of five conversations is brought to you by the Creative Economy Program at British Council Sri Lanka um, and Good Life X, working in partnership with British Council's program, Making Matters, our media partners at Roar Media um, and industry expert, Lomali Rodrigo. Tonight's session is focused on going beyond corporate social responsibility. Uh, we'll be discussing the drivers and barriers to adopting sustainability, circularity, and regenerative practices. Um, the challenges of scale, as well as addressing greenwashing that occurs across industries. Um, your wonderful set of panelists tonight are Sandia Salgado, a communications and brand strategist, Carol Collette, who is a professor in design for sustainable futures um, in the UK, uh, Manti Pereira, who is the head of social sustainability um, at MAS Holdings, Bikum Rajapaksha, who is a co-founder and managing director of Kansala Private Limited. Um, and our moderator tonight is Arj Vignaraja, who is an alchemist for good growth here at GLX. So without further ado, I will pass it off to um, our moderator Arj to get this discussion started. Thank you all again for joining us today. Thanks so much, Emma, for that uh, introduction and uh, welcome to all our panelists and also to all of you listening in on uh, whichever platform that, uh, that you've uh, dialed in. And uh, really looking forward to exploring this fifth and final discussion topic uh, on going beyond corporate social responsibility. And all our panelists in, in different ways and forms are at the forefront of this transition and are fighting that good fight. Uh, so it'd be uh, wonderful to hopefully listen to their insights and guidance as we as we explore this topic. So uh, to start off, of course, you know CSR, right? Corporate social responsibility. Uh, interestingly, you know, was first formally defined in the 1950s. In fact, 1953, um, when there was a realization that there ought to be a more defined social contract between the company and its stakeholders, right? And that really define the responsibilities of a company. And you know, these responsibilities were around three areas, right? Around providing jobs and economic growth, doing it profitably, um, running a business in an ethical manner. And thirdly, becoming more broadly involved in the society and communities that the business operated in, right? So starting to define that more formally, uh, before that, obviously, we had to rely more, more on uh, philanthropy, uh, you know, for the industrialists or their families. Uh, through their foundations, they would engage in philanthropy, but that was really separate from the company. And then with the advent of CSR, you, you know, in the more recent decades, you're starting to see uh, terms like strategic CSR, which is more aligned uh, to the company's mission and to its stakeholders, whether that's uh, employees or customers. And now, more, much more recently, a real strong push towards sustainability. Uh, and then also from a reporting perspective, uh, uh, you know, ESG, uh, environmental social governance frameworks. So companies are really under a lot more 
scrutiny uh, in terms of how they operate, what investments they're making, and how they're going to report on these behaviors. So it's, it's, you can see this transition, this journey. And um, Amanti, I'm going to start with you because, uh, you know, at the very beginning of this year, in January of this year, MAS, in fact, announced uh, a new um, sustainability strategy for 2025 around these three pillars of changing lives, uh, changing products, changing lives, and changing the environment. Uh, so I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on how that, how y'all have got to that point. Um, y'all are known for, you know, programs like Women Go Beyond, uh, Eco uh, uh, Go Beyond. How do those kind of fit into this? Or is it a, is it a, is it a complete different evolution that y'all have got to? Thanks, Aj. Uh, well, uh, it's it's an interesting story, and uh, to your point, uh, you know what you raised just before, how you know CSR had evolved. The evolution in MS is also somewhat, you know, uh, aligned to the story that you just, uh, you know, uh, spoke of. The one of the most important things that uh, you know we've we've been lucky to have on our back is actually having families and uh, founders that believed in values. And uh, even with the evolution, I still think it's a strong, uh, you know, it's it's a strength to have on your side, regardless of things turning strategic, etc. So in MS's case, it was no different. We had leaders who believed in doing the right thing, uh, coming from a strong sense of values, etc. But there was obviously when, when individuals are involved or companies are starting out, there, there are natural areas you gravitate towards. Um, MAS and its founders were very strong on their on their people pillar. So lives changed for good was possibly the thing that they knew to do from the beginning doing things very differently when there wasn't a requirement, when it wasn't law, um, you know, the way they gave uh, various benefits to everybody uh, across the company, the culture they created of equality, etc. But when you see, uh, you know, the way the last few years have been, and in the past 34 years when MAS also was on this journey, um, one of the strongest things that have come out in the last few years is how um, you know, we need to be doing more and doing things deeper. And this was a lot to do with the fact that you see unprecedented natural destruction. You see a lot of, you know, uh, like you said, social call-outs, uh, you know, a lot of social injustice. And it was at this point that MAS really looked at, a, you know, took a strong look at why. Why are we doing certain things? And are we really creating positive change wherever we go? And change is something that, you know, the company was very keen on and was, you know, used to doing even our growth or our innovation. So what they did was they actually took all the programs that they did and took a look at what main areas are we really in. And we realized that we, we were in product, people and the environment. So what happens here is what you've realized that if we are to really make a change, product had to come foremost, right? Everything else we do is ancillary, but we are in an industry that's a huge pollutant. So we really went down the path of products change for good, lives change for good, and uh, planet change for good across 12 commitments, you know, encompassing the usual things on environment, which are like, uh, you know, energy and water and waste, um, 
biodiversity and people around giving meaningful employment, empowering women, our communities and world-class workplaces, but a huge area actually around our product, which was how are we going to really you know, generate 50% of our revenue from sustainable product? And there wasn't a definition for this, right? We really came up with a matrix to really uh, judge how a product can be called sustainable. I'm sure through the last conversations, there are so many factors from circularity for um, sourcing, etc. All of this was introduced into our plan for change. And this is a, a deliberate attempt to bring in all of these areas and programs like Women Go Beyond, Eco Go Beyond, tend to feed into this. So it's a, it's a case of the children gave birth to the parents, right? So the overarching strategy has lots of programs that are over 15, 20 years old, but now it's a concerted effort of really finding out where you can make the biggest impact, measuring it properly and seeing how it uh, you know, contributes to the bigger picture. Um, Amanti, thank you for that. And, and I think what's, uh, you know, it, it, like you said, it's, it's over 34 years you've evolved, but, but uh, really tackling product, which is at the core of the company, I, I think is a real game changer. Uh, you could have always done, you know, all of the, the other two pillars are, you know, around the company or at the periphery, but really tackling the product itself, I think seems to be a real significant shift uh, in the approach. So thank you for sharing that real kind of journey or evolution. And obviously it's a continuation. Uh, and I also like the fact that you'll have set this, you know, it's not some long-term find the future, it's for 2025, which is, you know, within, within striking distance. So uh, thank you for that. Um, Carol, I'm, uh, you know, uh, I'm gonna turn to you next. And, you know, you are also wearing multiple hats, uh, you know, in your collaboration with LVMH, uh, you know, you're, you're uh, working in the field of regenerative luxury. Um, but also through the Living Systems Lab, uh, you are in biodesign. Uh, and then I, I love this other part in your role as a professor at uh, you know, Central St. Martins, uh, you are designing uh, what you call a disobedient design curriculum. And uh, I'm, you know, all three terms are fascinating and I'd love for you to maybe share or elaborate on the three concepts and uh, perhaps how they feed off each other. <clears throat> Well, thank you so much uh, for having me, and it's great to hear you, Amancy. And uh, actually, I'll refer back to Amancy talking about we need a plan for change. We all of us need a plan for change, and, and a very rapid plan, and a very radical plan. We need to really even reconsider, you know, the, the, the fundamentals of our economics. Um, and so, the partnership we have at Sandra Saint Martins with the luxury group LVMH is because. We want to explore how can we go beyond sustainability. Sustainability as a term has become slightly problematic. You know, you have anything from a brand saying, oh, we, you, we're recycling materials, so we're sustainable, to brands going fully circular, therefore creating a material flow which doesn't demand more raw primary virgin materials, which is great. But we are really at a cusp of a, a radical shift. We now, we've tripled our world population in the past 70 years. We now heading, you know, after COP26 uh, in November, with all the pledges from all the different nations around the world and all the companies, we're still heading for 2.6 degrees Celsius increase in our 
um, in our atmosphere, that will be quite radically um, disruptive for all of us, all our lives, wherever we are on the globe. Even the 1.5, which is our target, uh, the 1.5 degrees Celsius pathway, will be problematic and won't be fun at all. But with 2.6, it's really getting very seriously concerning. Um, and in terms of biodiversity, we've now lost nearly 70% of our uh, wildlife populations again in the past 40 years. So the idea of regenerative design, regenerative practice is to actually go beyond this notion of zero impact or neutral impact. But to try and see how do we use our agency, whether we're designers, CSR, marketing, HR, how do we do our everyday in a way that we actually help replenish biodiversity, take carbon out of the atmosphere far more than we need for the product we are designing? How do we repair our communities? So it's great. It's really you know brilliant ambition, but it's we don't. It's really difficult. How do you do that? So how do you change the way we design, for instance, so that through my design decisions, I can help replenish a biosphere? That's where that takes us to disruptive curriculum and disobedient curriculum. And this is one of the things that the luxury group LVMH is very keen to see is how else can we design? And, and so it's not in our view to, to, to design better with less impact, great. We're all in that transition. But can we accelerate that? And how do we design in a way that's radically different? Hence why we've uh, just launched a new master's program fully online. So anybody who is actually in Sri Lanka could join this course. Uh, it's a master's of regenerative design. And the idea is that we will have an ecologist, a designer, an anthropologist in a team helping designers wherever they are in the world to look, understand their biosphere. What is the biodiversity? issue where they live locally, um, what are the community issues, and then use their design practice, their craft practice to help repair their communities and their biosphere. And that's very disobedient. You know, we're not used to think yeah. about where repairing the world is the starting point for the design process. That's quite radical. Currently, in design, and I'm very critical of design education, you know, I work at Santa Martins and I'm constantly internally challenging what we do because it's not good enough to just think about designing a product or designing a fashion collection or designing a service. We need to start by understanding, and that's where we talk about whole system thinking or living systems thinking. We need to think about a whole system. We can't just fix one part, not knowing what happens in the rest of the system. And we are embedded in living ecosystems. So that systemic thinking is, is important. And this is what we do in the, the Living Systems Lab is a research lab dedicated to develop new knowledge informed by living system thinking uh, in the field of art, design, and, and architecture. Um, so I'm a biodesigner myself developing new knowledge in how could we explore, for instance, mycelium uh, as embellishing patterning techniques for textiles to replace petrochemicals. So this is much more fundamental research um, looking at you know, what can we do, that what can we learn from biology and from nature? So it's very much a biomimicry uh, philosophy. So that's, that's how everything connects, you know, exploring what does it mean to design for regenerative luxury in the case of working with AVMH as you know, this is the, the leading luxury group. But how else do we educate our designers so that they can have a profound, radical, positive benefit um, and what can we learn from nature? And this is where biodesign comes in. And 
uh, Carol, thanks for that uh, kind of explanation as well. And I, I think, again, interestingly, uh, you know, you're talking about planting that seed at the earlier stage, at the design stage, and getting people to understand uh, thinking like, you know, repairing, you use the word replenish to regenerate, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, circularity or, or, or kind of recycling. So way, way beyond those yeah. terms, really at the, at, the, at the very start to imagine your ability to replenish or to regenerate. And it's easy to talk about actually, but it's not easy to do. We're not yeah. really clear. How do we do that? Yeah. Um, but it's really this notion of, you know, I think all designers should have fundamentals of ecology. They need to understand how to, to do a biodiversity impact assessment. They need to understand how the, the fundamentals of, you know, how traffic cascades work and how their design choices because of their material or technology choice disrupt our ecosystems. Yeah. And I think that needs to be part of the fundamental, the same way most designers now will know about the digital world. I, I think the ecological skill set has to be integral to design practice. And so it, we need a radical change in, in the way we, we learn and teach design. And, and this new MA regenerative design is really kind of hoping to fill one of that gap. Excellent. And also, you know, it's ecology. And then you also said anthropology. So that, you know, real, that, that idea of human behavior, and, uh, because we have to be holistic yeah and i mean you know there's a lot of talk around the climate let's fix the climate but if we if we don't fix biodiversity what's the point <laughs> and if we don't fix our communities you know why are so many people still living in poverty in the 21st century not having enough food on the table that's not acceptable and i think the idea of regenerative design is to have that holistic view so understanding how to design and support communities understanding notions of ethics you know, we don't want designers to go and exploit an indigenous community for mm. their own benefit. So the whole ethical practice has really got to be integral. But the idea of holistic regenerative design is that you, you repair every angle of the system. So the humans, the non-humans, the biosphere, the atmosphere, the stratosphere, it's really having that system thinking. Fantastic. Thank you, Carol. Really appreciate that. Um, Vikum, I'm going to uh, turn to you and, and uh, really, uh, you know, you, you launched this brand Kantala back in 2013, uh, you know, as, as a vegan, sustainable handbag and fashion brand. Um, but, you know, underlying that was, uh, you know, you had the desire to empower, you know, so the economic, social, but also the cultural well-being, right, of traditional artisans. Um, so it's, you know, it's been a good almost a decade since you launched. And I'm, I'm also curious again, Vikram, to see what the journey has been and how perhaps you have evolved uh, from, from that beginning to, to where you are now. Um, thanks, Arj. Um, so actually, until, until you mentioned it's been 10 years since, like nearly 10 years since we started, like, can't even realize that time has flown so fast. Um, so I think the when we started off, it was always kind of in our mind and the kind of aspiration, the drive to kind of start a part of it was um, the rec recognizing the economic potential that um, Sri Lanka's um, traditional craft sector, especially the cultural IP, has to be leveraged as an economic asset. So it was it, it really came about how can we leverage these um, IP implementing in the rural communities, um, create job opportunities for the youth, 
um, more job opportunities. So the uh, men and women who migrate overseas as unskilled labor can be retained in the country, create economic opportunities for them. So to be very, I'm being very frank, we also went in with a slight savior kind of mentality in there. No, with this, with this kind of um, ideas and aspirations that look here, going and telling them to these craft communities, see, we see the potential, um, come on board with us and let's do this together and we can help save your economy. But, um, but once you start working with them, once you start really sitting down, understanding the craft, the culture, uh, the community, you're really humbled. I mean, it's a very humbling experience. And you actually start to realize in these indigenous community crafts, um, and there's so much for us to learn. And I think one of the most valuable experience for us was that there's actually more for us to learn and then bring that back to, let's say the contemporary economy, um, rather than actually trying to um, go 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 to these indigenous craft communities and try and kind of corrupt them with this capitalist um, uh, consumption driven kind of economic uh, thought processes and uh, uh, principles. Um, so I think one of the one, one thing that changed us so so kind of what that brought us to us that realizing that we can't sustain this to, to be I mean to be honest we um, can this world really sustain another thousand, another two thousand, maybe another ten thousand different designers in the fashion industry? Um, I mean, uh, can we can we sustain? Can this planet sustain another so many thousands of brands? Um, so, so then again, our can our thought process was okay. Like, rather than creating something entirely new, how can we leverage what's already there and make it as um, um, Carol said, down the regenerative principles. How can we integrate those so that we are not actually creating something entirely new? Let's look at the existing supply chains and let's look at the existing, this indigenous knowledge, this indigenous cultural IP, and let's maximize the potential of those so that we can actually address the ecological, the social, the cultural issues that we have. Um, so, I mean, we, we've pivoted in that sense in, in, in terms of the product material design. Um, and that comes to um, one of um, the other concepts that we're dealing with is in terms of degrowth. So some of the supply chains that we kind of started working with and reintegrating into a new kind of forming them into a new supply chain around these indigenous crafts. The idea was really to take them out of these supply chains which were producing ridiculous amounts at really low cheap prices using very unsustainable materials and bring them into a new supply chain where we are actually using um, sustainable materials, regenerative materials, regenerative design, but also paying them a living wage. So they actually don't need to overproduce to make a living. So the distribution of wealth becomes more equitable across the value chain. So we can actually ensure that people are achieving a standard of living without having to overproduce and overpollute. Um, and and another, another aspect that we actually learned from these indigenous crafts artisans, our traditional artisans was also the material that we use, the 
the multitude of other functions that these materials can um, do. So say for example, the HANA plant, the, which is the core material in our products, it, it, it captures, uh, it's a regenerative plant, harvested uh, sustainably, it keeps on regrowing, it doesn't need fertilizer, it doesn't need watering, it doesn't need pesticides, it's an absolute sustainable plant, and it actually captures carbon from the atmosphere. And, and it also lends itself very well as a biofence uh, where there's animal-human animal conflicts, a biofire breaker where there are bushfires. So we can actually, so we've actually started planting these in those regions. So now we've kind of created a system where we are capturing the carbon um, and we are also creating economic opportunity for the farmers and these other communities um, by helping them to create these biofences and then um, uh, make a living, but also giving sustainable economical solutions for these different countries. Um, so I think so. So these were. I mean, we didn't think about That's, this. Yeah, like, no, we, and, we and from really where you started. started yeah, exactly. yeah, we never really thought uh, that we'll be farming these plants when it started off. But once you kind of realize the potential, I think, um, so that's, that's kind of been our journey, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, and uh, again, Vikram, thank you for sharing that, uh, that transition and that, uh, actually also that realization, right? And, and you talk about really having to be humble and to listen and learn from the indigenous communities and that wisdom. Um, but also the other important uh, point you made on, uh, you know, not overproducing, you know, and, and often I think the challenge for, our artisans tends to be a push to quickly put stuff out, uh, potentially, let's say, to cater to the tourism market. So, mm. in fact, in the rush to produce or overproduce, then even the quality of what gets put out uh, starts reducing drastically. And, you know, it, it, it really hurts. Uh, it's a very negative uh, cycle that and spiral, downward spiral that you're in. So, so I'm really glad that, you know, you're, you're, uh, you've latched on to and, uh, and are hopefully inculcating this idea of you know, producing less uh, but of higher quality and that you can capture that value uh, for the artisans directly. So uh, thank you for that. Appreciate that. Um, I'd like to really, you know, as, as you'll have gone through these journeys, really also think about what have been the drivers and barriers to adoption really of sustainability. And I'm talking about sustainability at the core of the company, right? As opposed to, again, at the periphery or as, as a nice to nice to have uh, kind of feel good project. Um, so Sandhya, let me uh, turn to you. And, you know, again, given your experience working with a number of corporates right across, um, you know, their marketing, advertising, branding strategies and their campaigns, um, you, you've had visibility insight into their thinking, their approaches. So I'd like to get your sense across um, a number of entities as to what you feel have been some of the enablers or drivers of, of companies really uh, moving beyond, you know, let's call it, you know, moving beyond the tick the box kind of CSR uh, work. Uh, and of course, the flip side of what, what you see that gets in the way of their ability to, to really be genuine and authentic in their approach. Thanks, Aj. Um, actually, my um, almost three decades of, uh, of a journey in the corporate sector and the development sector has uh, made me realize that uh, people label have many labels, uh, CSR, sustainability, all of that. Uh, but actually, when you look at ourselves as Sri Lankans, uh, in the core of a Sri Lankan, uh, there is this concept of 
sustainability or CSR embedded in our culture and in our tradition. Uh, without being oversimplistic, I want to mention about a very basic nursery rhyme that we all grew up with. Mega se boho, panidodam tibe. I think uh, it's a long thing, so I, I don't want to waste time uh, narrating that. Uh, but I don't know whether people of um, uh, outside of my vintage have, uh, have heard it and know about it. But that little nursery rhyme is the perfect simplest uh, explanation on how to live uh, a sustainable life. Um, so what I'm trying to tell you is uh, sustainability and CSR has been in our core. Uh, we grew up like that, but somehow when it comes to corporates and businesses, um, profitability presides over everything else. Uh, and why and to answer uh, your question about some of the barriers and triggers uh, that we have in, in actually looking at sustainability or uh, corporate social responsibility seriously as a part of part and parcel of the business culture, I think um, largely there are two main things that come out and, and sort of scream at us. And firstly, it is a lack of consciousness in the management of the management, the decision makers, you know, for them, it's about profit at any cost. Uh, the second point is lack of awareness. Uh, there are zillions of uh, younger people in companies who are really gung ho about wanting to make a change with the concepts that they are bringing to the table with new and uh, interesting strategies to manage this uh, whole whole sustainability issue but the decision makers boards and the and the senior management have absolutely no idea or have little idea about the benefits, the long-term benefits for a company, because there are some um, very, very basic uh, factors that I would like to uh, share here. Firstly, the concept of CSR and uh, even sustainability and any label you want to put it, put there is very broad and ambiguous. Uh, because as even now, when we talk about it here, so many people have different interpretations as to how they would bring the sustainability or CSR onto their business decision making. So that's there. Then the fact that there are no mandatory regulations in Sri Lanka is also a big deterrent because people have to just, you know, do as they please. Uh, and most of the time, as you would know, it's a tick in the box largely. I'm being very candid about it, right? There are the uh, sustainability awards. There are so many things that happen. So the reporting happens because of, you know, meeting the basic needs of reporting. But is that sustainable, is that sustainable business is my question. Thirdly, there is a, a big mystery around the economy, economics of being a sustainable uh, brand or a company. So there is that gray area that uh, the management is grappling with. Uh, and of course, we need to know that, um, you know, the society is very quick to punish corporates that make mistakes. So they want to make sure that they are they're managing the uh, societies, the communities and the environment to the best of their abilities. Uh, and, and finally, also, um, uh, the fact that uh, the 
the standards expected from the society and the community is pretty high. So all these things make the management a little, you know, uh, unsure of what exactly they should be doing. And lack of knowledge and lack of commitment uh, added to this really make it a very, very tough uh, place to be. In. So um, that is my um, experience with regards a lot of big corporates uh, who are struggling to figure out how to uh, chart this course. Sandhya, thank, thank you for thank you for kind of uh, tapping across you know multiple years of experience and multiple corporates I, I think and distilling some of those real challenges. And I think that one of the interesting things you talk about is really this generational mindset and you know you have the decision makers of a different generation for whom you know this is still a tick the box or something on the periphery or a nice to have and then you have the younger generations who probably are a lot more closer and and feeling this more deeply and perhaps you know figuring out ways to bridge that or bring that energy and mindset into the decision making process could be a, a real interesting way to to bridge uh, bridge some of these barriers um uh, Amanti, let me ask you, uh, you know, uh, Sandhya was talking about some of these uh, difficulties, barriers, challenges, um, but, you know, if you look at MAS, uh, was it the fact that MAS is really working for, uh, let's say, you know, global progressive companies who themselves are catering to conscious consumers? Uh, so, essentially, did MAS have no choice but to say, look, we need to up our game, we need to respond to this? Uh, we need to make sure that Nike remains a good customer of ours and therefore we have to develop a real sustainability approach. Uh, without that, could it have happened, I guess? Uh, well, well, Arj, first of all, I'd, I'd like to think that we're working with progressive brands, uh, you know, brands as opposed to working for, but short answer is, I think uh, influence from progressive brands help. But uh, let me just get into the detail of that. I believe we evolved taking cues from multiple factors around us, right? Progressive customers included. But I think we would be missing half the picture if we didn't list, listen to the cues around, say, risk, license to operate, absolute science, and of course, being a responsible corporate. Because if, if you were just, you know, gravitating to one of these areas, there would also always be a time where the, you know, the, the, the foot is off the pedal, right? Mm. If you don't continue to work with a certain brand, does it become priority anymore, right? But today we really don't have the luxury for, of, you know, going after certain people or, you know, uh, dancing to the tunes of whoever we feel is important. There's pure science, there's lots of stakeholders. If we don't listen to the community, we don't know the next risk or where, you know, where we are going to have to operate or what the world is going to look like. So I believe that it is really important. And when we do that, in fact, I can flip the story and say that you know, we can drive brands. And, and I'd like to end that by actually saying, you know, giving you an example of a story, right? Um, we have uh, this, uh, you know, sustainable bra collection called Thrive. And how did Thrive come about? It was because when MAS made its plan for change and made the sustainable product criteria, we decided, and that was our product team decided to approach like our 
you know, excellence for bra manufacturing, which was called Ayati, and gave them a challenge to come up with the most sustainable bra possible because the bra amongst all our products would be the toughest egg to crack when it comes to sustainability, just based on its complexities. And the Ayati team worked across multiple, you know, factors and matrices and made an entire collection, you know, using so many, uh, you know, parameters of sustainability. And then we made that an offering to some of our more sustainable and, you know, um, sustainability conscious uh, customers saying, listen, we have this line that's ready to go. And they have taken us up on it, uh, you know, and you would see this product coming through. So that is where the, you know, tables have changed, you know, you know, you've shifted around the table. And that's Sorry, Arjun, mute. Uh, sorry, I was saying that, that that's fantastic. That flipping the script, uh, and you know, I hope other entities also in Sri Lanka see that potential, uh, not to be sort of the order taker or taking direction, but actually being able to be the innovator and then taking solutions uh, out into the world and to to their customers. So I, I think that's a fantastic uh, example that you shared with us. Thank you for that. Um, Carol, in a similar vein, and, and you know, based on your understanding of uh, LVMH and you've collaborated with them, uh, you know, is it because they are in a luxury category, premium segment with high margins that, you know, no pun intended, that do they have the luxury of, of uh, experimenting and, and, and working with regenerative uh, design, regenerative luxury, and, and can a regular brand even ever hope to, to do what uh, LVMH is trying to do? Uh, yeah, I mean, so first of all, I don't speak on behalf of LVMH, um, but definitely, you know, what's exciting about the luxury sector and not just in this group is that that, that level of, of um, operation is, is really both the, the guardian of very incredible heritage, traditional craft skill sets and know-how, but also looking into radical innovation, new ways of doing things. So I think it's a very interesting place to be. Uh, but when it comes to regenerative design, I think anybody should do it. It's it's not about who should do it. It, it should be a cultural shift, a deep cultural shift, um, where the act of purchase as a consumer should bring a positive benefit to the planet, where the act of design should actually repair. But I, th and I think that's not a privilege of luxury. I think that's any um any yeah. level of the market should be looking at this because then that would really start to really have a much more impactful um system shift but i want to come back a bit to your your very first introduction today you talked a bit about the history and the evolution of csr but and i think something to add to that is quite often the csr teams have evolved and they've you know they've grown but I see, and I'm not talking about LVMH now, but I see in different brands, in particular in fashion, where you have a CSR team somewhere, not really talking to the design team. You know, you have different teams that have evolved in different, with different visions, different targets, different skill sets. And I think we need more bridging. We need to decentralize this notion of accountability. But we mm. also need to go beyond being accountable to us humans. You know, how are we accountable to rivers? how we are accountable to that, you know, to that mountain, how we're accountable to other species. And I think currently CSR strategies, wherever I look, are still anthropocentric, human-centric, so is design. 
And of course, again, very easy to say that, not easy to start thinking differently, but we really need to engage with the non-humans. You know, the idea of designing for biodiversity, looking at living soil, for instance, how do we repair our soil? How do we make sure our little earthworms are super happy? And that can be through conscious decisions. And LVMH is very interested in looking at particularly biodiversity. It's one of their key targets. Um, and they've set up a new research center uh, for their wine and spirits sector, uh, particularly dedicated to research how we can continue you know, producing the most amazing champagne, but at the same time, repair, actively repair mm -hmm. biodiversity in our soil. And equally, they've launched a, a new, a brand new R&D research center for sustainable luxury. And uh, that very much is going to regenerative luxury, which will open uh, in south of Paris in uh, four years time now. So there's a real investment in R&D because because there's an acknowledgement that we need to look at doing things differently. And there's a knowledge gap. And that innovation gap has to be and will happen through research. Um, and so how do we, you know, as a designer, how do we learn how to design a textile collection that repairs our rivers? How, how do we even think that we're accountable to a river? You know, it's, it's, not a skill set, it's a mindset. And I think we need to shift to that mindset where we think about non-humans, microscopic non-humans all the way to birds and elephants. And, you know, we do need to think about the impact of our design decisions on the entire living world, because we depend on that world to survive as a species. And uh, Carol, that, that thinking, uh, you know, again, just the, the, the being, you know, we have to be so humble to, to stop do. thinking about, you know, us and, you know, human-centered design and really, as you said, that's, uh, and taking into microscopic, you know, uh, living beings that we cannot even see. And we, we can't keep putting the human into, on top of the chain. Yeah, we are part yeah. of an ecosystem. And, and, and you know, without, you know, as a human, I'm covered in bacteria. I would not be alive with the bacteria in my guts and on my skins. Yeah. So I'm not a one entity. I am an ecosystem as, as a human being anyway. Yeah. And I think we forget that actually, you know, the oxygen I breathe is because trees next to me have generated that oxygen. We completely codependent on our living um, ecosystems. Yeah. And I think that's, again, it's not a skill set. So when you say, you know, is a VMH, is it because you're luxury, you do that? No, it's a mindset. If all of us, whether you work in design, whether you work in HR or in CSR, had that mindset to think about our everyday acts and what does that do to repair the living, <clears throat> to benefit other living beings, Yep. then that would be the ideal success criteria, I think. You know, it's how what we do, uh, you know, and use our expertise, our passion to do what we do, but in a way that benefits other living beings. I think it's a mindset. So you don't need to have a know-how. You just need to have the will. To start a, that, at that, least start with that. Yeah, yeah. Carol, uh, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, again, sort of a real a real shift in, in, in thinking that, that is required for that. And... Uh, uh, stripping out a lot of the a lot of the ego and and uh, you know our view of who we are in this world. So um, I'd um, I'd like to uh, become um, uh, ask you a question that I feel sometimes might get in the way of 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 getting to uh, true sustainability. And this is a challenge of scale. 
And, um, you know, I, I've had experiences recently, you know, working with a couple of larger entities. Uh, and and, and as we were talking about um, regenerative models or at a minimum circular models, there was a real reluctance to embrace models like that because they couldn't envision those kind of models operating at scale, right? So these companies are already at scale. So anything new has to match or, or, or be, you know, a percentage of revenue that makes sense. Uh, so anything that is seen as marginal uh, might be interesting, but not not um, not large enough or scalable enough to the core of the company. Um, so the flip side question to you, Vikum, is you know, Kantala, will it ever be able to scale? Because you started with sustainability at the core of this uh, entity, and are you? Uh, destined to be, you know, of a certain size because of your your purpose and mission as uh, for the for the brand. Um, uh, are you constrained in, in that way? Um, so yeah, actually, that's 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 a good question. I think if anyone who's running a business um, is keen to expand um, scale, but then I always ask the question: um, scale what? Um, what is that you're trying to scale? So for Cantler as a social enterprise that's uh, driven to make an impact, for us, it's about scaling impact. And that is the main priority. That is the key driver in building, expanding and growing. Um, so we don't think in terms of scaling our output and scaling our profit. We think about how do we scale our impact, and every business decision that we make, a commercial decision we make, is around that. So, invariably, when you think about scaling impact, you will expand your business, you will expand your output. But because it's impact that you are conscious of, you are always making decision in terms of how does this impact the environment, how does this impact society. How does this impact the communities that we work with? So fundamentally, you would make a decision that is beneficial to everyone, to the environment, that it doesn't like, like what Carol's saying. How do, we, how do we put back into the environment something positive? Like how do, we, how do we help the environment to heal? How do we help the environment to regenerate its depleting resources? So that is, how we would imagine scale, scalability. So obviously, I mean, that's this is where I come back to this whole um, point I made earlier, that when we decided that we are not going to create a new supply chain, uh, we are going to take an existing supply chain and readapt it into a regenerative um, degrowth model. Um, and, and when you do that, I mean, you can obviously, um, Kind of see that you're not scaling just product you're just not scaling output because when you do that as you said arch at the beginning um, um uh, in summary before um the quality goes down the value goes down and then you get into this very vicious cycle of producing more low quality low value products just so that you make enough to live um so it's that's the only way to break the cycle is to just ask what are you scaling and i mean um, I would encourage anyone who's listening in today who's running a business, an enterprise, um, when you're thinking about growing, if you're an SME, if you're thinking about growing, ask yourself, um, 
first of all, what am I trying to scale in my business? Am I just trying to scale my purely my output, my profit, or am I trying to scale the positive impact that I'm leaving? And if you ask yourself that question first, and then you go down the road of scaling your impact, um, you're actually going to leave a positive result. So I think um, we need to be uh, kind of tweak that question rather than asking someone in the SME sector, so what's your plan to scale? Yep. I think our question should be to someone in the SME sector, what's your plan to scale your impact? I think that's, again, uh, Vikram, thank you. That, uh, again, fantastic question that, that flips uh, the concept of scale and, and what you're trying to achieve. And I, and I think a lot of people will uh, truly latch on to that because our understanding at the end of the day, I'm more, I'm more uh, desirous of making the right impact. And if I can scale that by doing less damage and producing less, uh, there's definitely potentially a path uh, that opens up. So uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, Emma, if I can ask you to uh, share the definition of uh, a term that we're going to explore uh, briefly uh, with this panel. Uh, as part of this series, uh, you know, we've been exploring a few different words. Uh, we've looked at things like biomimicry in a previous panel or circular economy. Uh, so we have uh, the term that we'd like to explore is uh, greenwash or greenwashing. And, and as you can see, you know, we've got um, the definition here or a definition. Uh, the word was actually, uh, again, I think coined um, uh, in um, the 19, uh, I want to say the 1970s in, in, in uh, New York, and it related to the hotel industry, you know, where uh, you'd find a bunch of the hotels would put a little sign that said, you know, if, uh, if you want to help save the environment, uh, you know, please reuse your towel. Um, and, uh, you know, this uh, environmental activist actually did the research around that and said, you know what, there's actually zero impact this um, uh, on the environment that this action happens. But what it does do is it makes the hotels more profitable because they, you know, you, you reuse the towel uh, uh, and, you know, it reduces one wash cycle, but minimal impact on the environment, but bigger impact on their profit, and hence the word greenwashing, which, which kind of came about. So it's been well over, you know, three decades since this term um, was, were, came about. And I'd like to get your sense or perspective from, uh, from you, whether how you might uh, redefine it, expand the definition, again, based on, on the insights that you've seen. Um, and also, you know, one of the questions that's come up uh, from one of our uh, audience members is also, you know, how do you, uh, how do you genuinely avoid uh, your companies or the companies you work with being tagged with saying you guys actually greenwashing and not really um, doing something that's authentic and sustainable. So uh, thanks, Emma, for sharing that. If uh, we can go, maybe uh, if we could start with... Uh, uh, Sunday on that. Um, oh, uh, I'm sorry. Let me actually start with Carol. Just uh, 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 the sense of defining or redefining uh, the word greenwashing. Uh, I didn't actually know this came from the hotel sector. So that's great. I've learned something. Um, so for me, there's two types of greenwashing. There's a greenwashing from, and I'm going to talk about designers specifically here. A lot of designers will do greenwashing because they're ill-informed, they're fairly naive, or they don't have enough knowledge. So I still sadly meet designers that tell me 
Oh yeah, but we're using natural cotton, so we're fine. This is sustainable. So this whole myth that natural is sustainable for me is really problematic because the, of course the way we do nature natural as humans is really problematic. So conventional mm. cotton, for instance, is a disaster for the planet because of how we grow in monoculture intensively with heavy amounts of pesticides. So I see a lot of designers who do greenwashing because they don't know. And so my first right. big battle is to make sure that A, they should know. Yes, they might have been trained 20 years ago when that knowledge wasn't there, wasn't that prominent, but there's no excuse to not be trained and update their skills and have the knowledge of what is more or less sustainable so they can make the right choices. So I see that level of greenwashing, which is based on naivety, lack of knowledge. And again, I blame education a lot for that and I work in education, so I can say that. But the other greenwashing, which is more, um, difficult is the strategic greenwashing, uh, which is conscious decision to make claims which are not correct, simply to try and fake it and to try and avoid doing anything. And I think that we can really challenge when we really uh, demand for much more specific targets. I think you can't improve the sustainable uh, strategy of a company if you don't have clear targets in terms of climate, uh, biodiversity, communities, and, and this need to be assessed independently. And, and I think without these clear goals and targets, you remain in that space of fluffiness, is what the cat right. just says. <laughs> um, but I think it's really important we have clear targets um, and science-based targets. And I think to be fair, as much as it's really challenging, we, we're in a very critical environmental stage now, but we've never had so much science. We've never had so much tools to help us. And the, the science-based targets initiatives, if, if some of you don't know it, I can put it in the chat, but there's very good clear guidelines for the fashion sector, for instance, to look at how do you um, establish your climate plan, for instance. Um, we need to look at a biodiversity plan. Um, but I think it's with, with clear science-based targets and, and clear actions, this is how we can avoid that more strategic greenwashing because now the tools are there, there's, right. there's no excuse. And I think if, if instead of greenwashing strategies, we had life-giving strategies, we mm. would be, be in a very different place. Great, thanks. Um, and um, Amanti, if I can, uh, you know, again, based on the, the follow-up to one of the questions from the audience, um, with MAS, uh, again, you know, how do y'all tackle uh, the concept of greenwashing or uh, are there again certain standards that you can point to that you say look you know we, we adhere to these standards or uh, how, how do you grapple with with the you know the potential charge of saying you guys also part of the greenwashing you know uh, movement. Sure. sure I think that was a great question that was raised on the chat and um, I, I'd first like to remove two things just because you adhere to certain standards that doesn't mean it removes you from greenwashing there's lots of ways that you know you could be saying one thing and doing one thing and you might be great with mm. standards in one area but you know you could fall apart in another so just to come back just so that you know you can continue with what carol said uh, we have signed up for science-based targets looking at the industry ambition of keeping you know the increased level you know within 1.5 degrees celsius from pre-industrial era this is looking at absolute 
reductions, right? So we're looking at a baseline against 2019 and saying year on year, we're going after 4.2% so that, you know, overall at the end, we will have a 25.2% reduction, which keeps us aligned to that uh, industry, uh, you know, ambition. So you really need to work the science, not saying this as a, as a percentage of your growth or your headcount. You know, we bring in absolute numbers to say, regardless of what MAS is doing, this is what we are after because the world needs this reduction. Right. right. So right. definitely in the same manner, we have uh, standards, you know, around the HIG index. We have, uh, uh, you know, areas that we are point, uh, getting into, for example, like uh, our chemical management. And there are, as uh, the question has asked, obviously, we have made, uh, you know, um, commitments on, on a target that we're hoping to achieve. And we report on them. And the nice part about reporting is not like a scorecard where you hit the number, right? You speak of your journey and you also say why you couldn't hit it or what has you know, held you back, right? And that's half the part of uh, reporting. It's not like a cricket match where you, you, know, you set out to get the other side has this and you have to get this score. And if you get it, you win. If you don't, you don't. But you put a stake in the ground and say, this is what we're after. These are our plans. We'll tell you how that's going. This is what worked. This is what we learned. And that is super important. If you are going down this path of reporting, that's what keeps, uh, I wouldn't say, you know, I, I'm, I'm not really keen on keeping greenwashing, uh, you know, the lobby at bay. I feel that mm. it has a role, right? Yep. That's what keeps you honest. Yeah. It's not a case of keeping the lobby out, right? Yeah. And I think all these actors are needed, right? And it helps. So I feel that there is a place for everyone, public sector, the uh, regulators, there's a place for, um, you know, the development sector, um, you know, just as Carol said earlier on, the anthropologists, the biologists, you need everyone to tell you because it's a journey and it's a moving target, right? Sure. What works for today, what we've signed up for, it might not be enough, right? And, and we need to be able to realize that and course correct. And that's why you need all voices. Right. And, and like you said, it, it, it keeps you honest, right? So, so having that pressure, having that uh, light or even an accusation. Uh, you know, forces you to respond and justify and and and, and point towards that. Um, uh, Vikum, can I get your perspective on uh, you know you know are the global brands um, you know moving away? Uh, are they you know from your perspective, right? Uh, uh, what are you seeing uh, that uh, either gives you hope or says you know hell no, you know there's still a long way to go. Um, so the so it, it is quite a contentious one, and I kind of this uh, kind of respectfully disagree with Amandi that the greenwashing lobby, as far as I'm concerned, just has no place. <laughs> they just they just pump so much money and lie through their teeth, um, and it's it's actually the disadvantages, and it actually puts the brands that will actually make an effort, an honest effort, but don't have those deep pockets the big brands have. Um, to really make a dent in the pollution, the, the, the environmental destruction, the communities that are being destroyed. I mean, we, we can't make that impact as significant as we would like to, because 
the bigger brands have far bigger, like massive um, um, marketing budgets. And they have so many of the magazines, the publishing houses, the advertising houses at their disposal just to craft a message and give it out. I mean, a couple of years back, um, H&M got pulled up, I think by the Swedish or the Norwegian Consumer Authority, a government authority for actually being, um, saying half-truths about their sustainability collection. Um, I think Livia Firth pulled out uh, pulled up Nike at the Copenhagen summit um, for some of the claims that they made. And I mean, um, and in response to the question that was posed as well. So there are two things that, um, I mean, I'll just to your question. I don't think the big brands are doing enough. Um, they are doing something. We first of all have to recognize that they're doing much more than maybe what they were doing 10, 15 years ago. So, I mean, we have to recognize where they are making an effort, that effort is being made. But is, as Carol said, is that effort sufficient? No, it's not. Um, we are far behind our targets. Uh, we aren't even committing to the targets that we need to start off with. Um, and I think Carol can correct me if I'm wrong. I think the fashion industry hasn't signed up with concrete sufficient targets um, at COP26. Um, that's one. Uh, two, um, so how do we as a smaller brand kind of respond to it and how do we become transparent? So, I mean, right now, um, we don't invest heavily on putting out periodical reports. We just put out anything and everything to do with our supply chain, the material, maybe through blog articles, maybe through social media, maybe putting on the profiles of who works with us. So we just release as much information as we can onto our public facing platforms. That is one. Two, um, actually something that we are doing right now is just not Cantler here in Sri Lanka. There's another amazing social enterprise called Selene, um, textile selling handlooms. So, I mean, both Cantler and Wies, uh, we are investing in uh, blockchain uh, to create more digital transparency um, and real-time live transparency in our supply chains. And this is actually somewhere we have the edge. Now, say for example, if you look at the transparency index, you would see that brands like H&M and some of the larger brands say where they are sourcing their products from, but not a lot of them go down to the wet production level. So that is where you have the dye plants, the mills and the cotton fields and all of this. So they don't go to even down that level. So the, the, the problem, and, and even though they say, what are the manufacturing plants they uh, purchase from, you can't find what is the wage, the hourly wage or the per piece wage paid to a person who's stitching or working on that particular product. So that gives us the edge because we have always set up ourselves with a living wage, with that transparency, with ethical material, like sustainable material sources. So that is where we are going to leverage these technologies so that someone can be it a consumer, be it an impact investor, be it an auditor from a certification body, that they can have access to these blockchain platforms and live see of a particular product. Who worked on this? Where was, where was the, um, uh, the material source from? Uh, what was fertilizer used? How much of water was used to dye? Um, how much, what was the living wage earned by the person who was working on it? 
were they paid on time? I mean, I mean, a huge problem we have right now is there are so many apparel plants in the world, throughout the world, where during COVID, brands cancelled their orders and still mm. have not honoured the payments that they had to. So, I mean, as much as paying a fair living wage, it's also important to pay each other decent, like a proper time. Um, so this is where I think we smaller brands, ethical, sustainable brands who already have the principles along our supply chains can really take that step forward and call out the bluff um, of the larger brands who have this massive marketing budget. So, Vikram, what you're also saying is, you know, that that idea of radical transparency really is, you know, the way that you could counter or actually um, uh, position vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, the, the 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 brands that might be engaged in 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 sort of uh, the the greenwashing with with all the large budgets uh, and messaging at their disposal. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and just ask them, what have you got? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Um, in the interest of time, I'm going to um, uh, see if we can take a few more audience questions um, as they come in. Um, um, so there's a question around, is there, uh, it's continuing this thought of greenwashing, but is there a new term um, uh, that, that's replaced greenwashing? Or, you know, is there a broader, because as things get, you know, more complex and more ways that people might be uh, not being radically transparent uh, to pick up from where we stop. Um, are any of the panelists, and I'm opening this, uh, you know, are you all familiar with any new terminology uh, that's coming into you or to describe uh, some of this behavior? Anything that, that you guys have come across? So perhaps I can comment, there's one, terminology which um, I, I know I'm in the UK here but I keep hearing which is a bit frustrating for me I keep hearing about um, you know designing for the climate climate emergency and and that's really problematic for me because mm. it's not just the climate the emergency uh, yes. you know it's the planetary emergency uh, which includes biodiversity which includes humans you know there's a lot of human emergencies too and I think we have this tendency to just grab a term and then that's that's it. But you know, when you say, you know, we have a climate emergency, so this is something we discuss uh, here at Santa San Martin. I keep saying it's not a climate plan; it's a planet plan we need. Um, otherwise, and so I think, in a sense of greenwashing, I think we tend to be a bit lazy with our language sometimes, and then just think. Well, it's just about you know it's the climate emergency and i and i'm fighting nearly every day saying it's a planet emergency not a mm. climate emergency and i think so for me it, it's not the same as greenwashing but i think it's um it's lazy it's a lazy and i think that the way the language we use reflect the misunderstanding of the issues as well or or the understanding of the issues um, so I think we need to really kind of think a little bit, you know, about the, generally speaking, about the language we use in describing what we do. And the other thing that annoys me now is that there's a, there's a real momentum around this whole notion of regenerative. And it's, it's a great narrative. It's very powerful. I know a lot of our students are really motivated by this notion of repairing the world. But I see a lot of brands saying we're doing regenerative design 
when they're not even doing sustainable is the new catchy <laughs> word it's a new yeah. sexy word no. used by people who don't understand what regenerative means and so it's just it's a bit of a trend you know we used to talk about resilient design or green design or eco design or sustainable design and then circular design now it's regenerative and people tend to swap just because it's the latest word but they don't understand the difference you know circular design means something quite specific um regenerative design too and i think it's this swapping this you know kind of again this laziness you know we use our language that that really and uh, carol again to your point the power of language and 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 being very specific or the more specific uh we are really has yeah. impact um but also to your point you know whoever kind of plants the flag and 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 defines the word uh with the most uh, you know with the most bucks behind it kind of has uh, potentially a disproportionate uh impact on how that concept is is perceived um there is a question also uh from the audience uh in terms of where could we or what are the sources that you or anybody on the panel might might point us to as being or deemed trustworthy in in either defining uh, some of these terms or or evaluating or helping to to say look when you know this is what you need to look for uh, to separate you know what's authentic from what is um, you know uh, really not uh, not truly sustainable any sources uh, resources that you might uh, any of you might recommend uh, that y'all have found helpful or you re refer to for guidance um if i'm mind i would say um fashion revolution is um a fair very reliable source so and they also run the transparency index so I mean, in the annual transparency index report, you can find out a lot about uh, their commitments to their supply chains. Um, so yeah, I, I'd say fashion revolution is a good source. It's a good one, great. And then it's hope to educate yourself as well in terms of your own, the, the actions you can take as a consumer as well. Great. Uh, yes, Carol. I mean, for me, I would say, and that's if you can, Take it. Go to the go to the science report. Read the IPCC report on climate. Read the UN Biodiversity Framework Plan. Go to the organizations that work with evidence-based data before they are translated and transformed by various other organizations and media. So. IPCC for climate, uh, the UN biodiversity, uh, UNEP for biodiversity, but I would go to the source uh, so that it's not disturbed, you know, kind of uh, adapted by someone else. By the train. They're not, they're not fun to read. They're quite heavy, compact reports, but if you right. want the data, I would go to the, the hardcore report. And, and, and Carol, as a true professor, you're saying do the research, do the work, uh, and, you know, not just latch onto the trend, right? And then that's absolutely uh, really great advice, right? Go, go to the source material that really defines the problems that we, we really have to address. Uh, and, and that gets you beyond sort of the, the, the trends. Um, uh, there was also a question uh, relating to the local context and uh, Amanti, I don't know if uh, you or Sunday might have a perspective on, uh, are there any local entities um, or bodies that are following or, or, or are kind of uh, places where there is, uh, uh, they're following global standards or certifications 
uh, that again, you know, you, you look to and say, you know, these are reliable, uh, either partners or uh, uh, entities we can work with uh, in, in a local context. So, so you've got the global standards, but is anybody uh, bringing those into the market locally in, in a Sri Lankan context uh, that you might be aware of? Um, so Arj, I'm going to just speak of this uh, very differently, a little bit like what Carol said, right? Yeah. Um, if you really are going after what's best for the community, there's a different approach to take. If you're really going after, say, something like an energy or science, there, there's a different approach to take. So there is a combination of factors. Yes, there are standards, there are reporting standards, there are standards on energy, there are standards on, uh, you know, social, uh, uh, you know, doing social good, etc. But you really need to understand the materiality of some of them as well, right? Uh, where would you affect it most? And then start there right and say okay is this something that you know if i am to make a change tomorrow am i going to work on a or on b first right and and that's a realistic conversation it might not yeah. be the perfect conversation but i'd say as opposed to doing nothing you need to start off by understanding where do you affect where can you make change and that is not by any means a weakness. I feel that mm. most people, I mean, even with greenwashing, lots of people are afraid to come up in front and say, this is what we're doing. I mean, great case in point is when a, a famous ice cream brand in Australia decided to put sustainability kind of triggers to the prime minister on their ice cream boxes. And everyone was like, okay, these guys are making ice cream, right? They have so much more to do with their water, etc. But right. if you are having a platform and you can use it, you don't need to be perfect today. To yes. do that, yes. Right? Yes. And so in that manner, going after speaking to a lot of people, I mean, there are great grassroots level organizations like, you know, Sarvode, etc., who would help you with understanding something on the ground. But I still say that, you know, it's almost like a quick fix when you're looking for the proper organization. You need mm. to find out whether it's a, it's a fit for you. And is that what you need? Is there right. some more research that needs to happen anyway, right? Or you put it out there. Stakeholder engagement, I feel, is the strongest tool, right? It has been before, it will, is today, and it will be tomorrow, right? You know but what you see. Right. There's so many other people who can bring more to the table. Right. Yes, it might be convoluted. They might have their own biases, but distilling that is a part of the conversation. Right. Bringing everybody into the conversation, be upfront, be open and see what standards are working out. I'd love to say that, you know, I'd still not name and say, you know, I'll work with this person for the rest of my life because. I wouldn't know where that trajectory would take right. them and whether it, it may rings true to you anymore. Yeah. And uh, I think, Amanti, what, what was important also is you said, you know, you, you don't have to be perfect, uh, but also, you know, that might prevent entities who have a platform from taking a stand because, you know, they're, they're concerned about uh, cancel culture, right? Or, or other yeah. points saying, you know, you haven't. But I think as long as to your point, you're authentic to saying, look, you know, we don't have all the answers. But on this particular issue, we have a stand and we want to move ahead. Uh, yeah. I think that being brave enough maybe is the right way to think about you. And when you make a stand, a stand it's, it's not just saying we don't have the answers, saying that we are not still good enough here, right? Yes. Yes. Just calling it out and saying we really need to improve here. 
But having said that, this is something we feel strongly about. I think people do respond to uh, authenticity. Great. So Thank I you. want to come over here and yes, mention that um, basically a lot of the decision makers in the corporate sector are scared because they think this is a very technical thing and everything is looked upon from a very rational perspective. Uh, if they look at the problem from an emotional perspective first and see what the emotional impact is and then try to find a solution rationally, I think a lot of this fear psychosis in approaching this subject can be uh, you know, uh, managed better. So it's not about what are the standards, what are the uh, you know, global standards or local standards, but what is best for my company or my brand, which will make an impact, a positive impact to the people and the planet, and of course, finally the profit. Uh, so I think we are being very rational about it, where the basic, uh, again, I go back to the brilliance in basics, is what we are missing out here. I know it's a very scientific area out there, but we can start with very simple basic steps so that this, uh, you know, this fear that surrounds all the decision makers can be uh, minimized um, and something more positive can come out for the corporates and the, I'm talking of the bigger corporates actually, uh, uh, who are not in the, in the, uh, in this, uh, uh, game of making a, a, a not, noteworthy change. And again, I think Sandhya, you're pointing to a lot of unlearning that has to happen, you know, because, because you're not, you're not supposed to bring emotion into, into the corporate boardroom and, you know, make decisions based yeah. on emotion and heart, right? So, so I, I think you're, you're uh, again, pointing to a, a similar to, you know, different ways of unlearning that needs to take place to really uh, have an effective uh, way forward. Um, I think uh, again in the just watching and managing time, I'd like to um, uh, ask each of you to uh, again, you know, to bring this discussion to close. I'd like each of you to uh, maybe define the ideal uh, corporation going forward. You know, or if you, you know, if you were starting from scratch today and you know you had this ability to define, I think you all have all touched on it in different ways. But if I could, in in almost in summary, ask each of you to define uh, you know this beyond csr what is what is the uh, you know ideal most impactful uh, entity uh, that should and could evolve uh, in sri lanka and the region uh, amanti may, maybe i'll start with you and then uh, we'll go down so um, keeping it very very brief um, arch i mean I'd, I'd like to envision a company that has models that look beyond today and the traditional scope of the core business right companies that set people up for disruptive scenarios and conditions that we don't even understand now. So how do you do that? How do you prepare for something you don't know, right? Looking at models where companies house, you know, partnerships with think tanks, with research organizations, working together, right? Uh, you would have one set of cloud, but on the other hand, you would have people doing the science, etc. And, you know, contributing to that, you might not be able to see the end of the journey, but you know that this journey is important. So you contribute to that. And once again, bringing to heart people development is huge, right? Um, just understanding this is by bringing public development sector secondments into companies, right? 
you might be having a great you know um, you know career planned up in the development sector but if you are to spend a, an year or a mm. couple of months working in a company and if that was possible right where your rich thinking will you know cross pollinate into the company and the way companies run and 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 the way they manage uh, their management styles will come into how you run you know then it's like you know not just ideas but like intent purpose those ideas will transcend into this you know the church chat is talking about it transcending into the boardroom etc everything starts with education right if you have people those young people coming in taking over a project for a shorter period of time so that there's voice there's agency you know the 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 future company if it has that model right i mean that's where i'd like my son and daughter to end up you know right 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 fantastic thank you amanti uh sandhya may i ask you to uh, paint a uh, picture for us yeah so my ideal company would be the topic itself is going beyond csr right so we talked about all what the company would do about their brand or their core business but i'm also uh, wishing and hoping that a company would look at just beyond that and another pillar of uh, putting in some uh, effort to to build the arts and culture uh, of our country because when you uh, when you develop the arts and culture you create a creative mindset of a mm. new generation uh, and that creative mindset becomes an innovative mind so we need uh, to start from there so not just look at the company's business and how the company can uh, be uh, Uh, responsible for what they utilize in the planet but can they also go one step ahead and do something about developing the uh, the creative mindset of a child or the new generation which enhances the the uh, by 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 adding to the arts and culture of this country uh, just an example of like what john kills is doing with their john kills foundation where they are really it's not i don't think it's an it's an integral part of their business but they've just stepped out of their comfort zone and doing something more than what mm. their businesses will benefit so that is what i would really wish for apart from all the good things that the company should do uh, in making sure that uh, you know uh, they develop sustainable brands and companies so that's and again going down that path is is scary it opens up a pandora's box but you know you're still you know being brave and 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 kind of pursuing that uh, path of supporting the creatives uh, yeah. in ways that you you don't know uh, you know there's no specific rois but you know you you the the impact uh, could be phenomenal thank yeah. you for that um uh, vikum can i uh, ask you to uh, Share your thoughts on the. Yes, um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just um, some technical issues as the current just went out and <laughs> the electricity. Um, so I mean, there's there's this um, when I think of like the ideal kind of company or kind that features picture of Sri Lanka. I think there's a lot for us to draw from my history. Um, I mean, we talk about social enterprise. um quite prominent in social enterprises right now but sri lanka had one of the very first um entities enterprises that had shared the attributes of a social enterprise so um i think um 
I think I, I, I personally want to see businesses which are mindful or, or a combination of being kind and mindful together. Because I think misplaced kindness can also come to bite you back. Um, so mm-hmm. I, 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 I steal this uh, term from a very famous monk who lives in Australia right now called Ajahn Brahmawanso. And he uses this term called uh, points together mindfulness and kind kindness and cause kindfulness so i think um that is yeah i think i think business any anyone i think it can be a new entity it can be an existing enterprise i mean anyone can make that commitment and i think we can see um significant meaningful change thank you for that uh, and uh Carol, may I uh, end with you with, again, uh, sort of defining that ideal entity? I'm loving this conversation. It's so great to meet you all, um, really inspirational. So what I want to say is I think Sri Lanka should become the country that prototypes a regenerative economy as the model that we all need to adopt. and a regenerative economy based on what um, Vikram just said, this notion of kindness, giving back, this notion of flourishment. What, you know, because we're talking about fashion and CSR, but we need to think about a bigger picture. So how, how can we transition from our current linear economy, which is profit driven purely in terms of finance profit for humans? How do we now shift to an economy that is uh, replenishing where we can all flourish together? so that a farmer is well paid. Uh, Do you see what I mean? I think we need to really kind of move into that direction. And I think Sri Lanka is in a really good position to prototype what that new economy looks like so we can all learn from you. And uh, again, Carol, you know, given the challenges that we are facing today in the traditional economic sense, um, you know, maybe, you know, as as people say, you know, it's, it's too good a crisis to waste in one yeah. sense, and might actually be forced to, to develop and, and drive certain alternative models that, that you know, have to, uh, we have to generate answers to, to the significant challenges uh, that are facing us, you know, not, not just for this year, but uh, into the foreseeable future. So I, I think uh, you're also raising or, or challenging maybe in a way uh, to, to come up with some different uh, solutions that, uh, uh, are not but, going to come out of the traditional capitalist kind of structures, right? Exactly. And I think, you know, because the size of your country, it's not huge, so it's a bit more manageable. The the geolocalization, the fact that you have an incredible heritage, uh, but you're also very future-facing. I think you're in exactly the right position to really, you know, take the lead on what does that regenerative economy look like? And 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 we, we need to do it you know through pilot programs and, and yes pilot programs companies uh, leading the way certainly um, not yeah. overnight um but uh but i, I think you're uh, you've opened an interesting path or, or avenue for us to really think about as well and then um, i'll come and visit oh absolutely you can absolutely. show me how to do I, it I think, uh, <laughs> I think all the panelists would love to meet up and uh kind of continue this conversation in, in fact again for the interest of time i have to pull up here and uh, hand back to Emma, but I have to thank all of you for uh, sharing your wisdom and your insights and your lessons. Uh, Some of them learned through the School of Hard Knocks. 
Uh, so appreciate all of you uh, being on this panel today. Thank you. Uh, over to you, Emma. Thank you so much, Arj. I am beaming. I am so happy, excited. Um, what an incredible session that we um, all just listened to. Carol, we accept. We are ready. I think all of us here on this call and in the whole conversation series, I um, mean, everyone who's been a part of putting this together um, are ready to really take these um, creative economies to the next level. Um, I think it's a job that we can all do together um, and that we're all kind of working on um, in our own corners, but um, definitely something that can bring us all together and, and make happen. Um, I want to thank you all again. Um, this is such a wonderful session. Um, and it is our final session. So I also really want to thank um, all of our partners that we've done this with. Um, the Creative Economies Program with Brad British Council, as well as Making Matters Program there. Um, and our wonderful industry expert, Lonali Rodrigo, and our media partners at Roar Media. Um, you guys have been integral in putting this all together, um, and we're really happy with how it's gone so far. Um, there's so much to be taken from these sessions, um, and I thank you all for your invaluable insights. Um, and I really can't wait um, to see what connections um, and uh, projects we can build off of everything um, that was spoken on today. Um, so with that being said, I know we've gone so much over time, um, but I, I don't think that we could have stopped this one. <laughs> um, so thank you all again. Uh, we will um, share the session with you um, over email um, and look forward to hearing from you all. Um, thanks again for joining in. Thank you.